Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi there, my name is Zach Twomley and you're about to listen to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails. I hope you're doing well, I hope you are enjoying our coverage, and if you've never listened to this podcast before, this is the 29th episode, so yeah, maybe don't start here. It's funny that we're at episode 29 of the Versailles Anniversary Project, because, believe it or not, all those years ago when I took on the predecessor of this project, the July Crisis Anniversary Project, that guy only took 29 episodes. So... It should give you an idea of exactly how much bigger Versailles was. But it's also a testament to how much more in-depth my analysis has become since I took on the July Crisis Project. If you haven't checked that out yet, and you'd like to know more about how the First World War broke out, go and track down the July Crisis Project. Otherwise, you are very welcome to this When Diplomacy Fails, a listener-supported podcast, a thing which is very obvious, but which has to be said, because you guys are making history thrive simply by listening to the show. And if you'd like to do your part to do more, all you have to do is tell someone. If you tell one person every week about this podcast, you'll be doing your bit to make sure that we get out there, to get our voice, to get our image to get that bomb logo out there as much as you possibly can that would be a great help if you're online join the facebook group like the facebook page follow us on twitter retweet something that we do email me to say that you're having a good time listening to what we're doing and of course as i said tell people about it we have a website wdfpodcast.com we also have patreon if you'd like to support us monetarily And currently we're doing something really cool called the Delegation Game, where you invent an avatar or some kind of 
figure from history and you adopt him as your kind of character and you then see how he gets on throughout the week, all the while making deals and negotiating with the people that have already sent their delegates to Paris. And I can tell you now that there's 37 of those such people and they're all crazy. They're all making a mess. They're all making deals and schemes and everything else. An awful lot's going on. Far too much to detail here. But if you'd like to know more, check out wdfpodcast.com forward slash delegation game. And that's basically where all the information is. And of course, you, all you have to do is click on the link in the description of this episode to find all that out. Otherwise, email me and ask. Of course, I'm only an email away. wdfpodcast at hotmail.com. So by the time you listen to this, I will have massively increased my workload in terms of my job. I'm now a lecturer in the Technological University of Dublin. So if you would happen to be in Dublin and you would like to learn about the economics of the European Union, how the European Union is integrated, or perhaps just Irish politics, stop on by, pay your fees of course, and I'll be happy to lecture you in that. It's important that I emphasise just how integral this podcast has been to my life. I couldn't have done any of this without you guys' support. I couldn't have made it to the position I'm in now without this podcast. I got the job in the university because one of the guys who works there listened to the podcast. That's basically how I got it. So if anyone ever tells you that podcasts are a waste of time, they ain't, because now I'm well on my way to becoming one of those academic people, and it's all thanks to the podcast. Consequently, it's all thanks to you. So yes, you could do all those things to support. You could go on Patreon and give us a small amount of money each month in return for a large reward. You could tell everyone till you're blue in the face, but you should know that simply because you have listened, this podcast has really returned the favour to me over and over again. So thanks so much. If you were in person right now, I'd hug you to say an extra thanks. But instead, I'm just going to say, enjoy this chunky episode. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 29. Today is the 30th of January 2019, and on this day in history, 100 years ago, occurred the following events. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons, delegates, all to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 29. It's so great to have you here, and it's so great to continue talking about mandates, something which people a hundred years ago didn't really know much about, despite the fact that they spent seemingly all day talking about them, asking questions about them, getting frustrated over them, and still being confused about them. 
There's an awful lot about mandates that still isn't really understood today. There's a debate that still goes on whether or not they were a genuine effort to reimagine how the European powers ruled over subject peoples, or if they were really more of the same. And I would lean more towards the more of the same cynical option, but hey, maybe you have a different point of view. In any case, in the last episode, we looked at the kind of what, well, what other people thought about mandates at the time. We looked at the progress that had sort of been made on the 27th and 28th of January, and then we said that we'd be back on the 30th of January to look at exactly what happened when that idea was properly presented. We're doing that today, and yes, the 30th of January is a story that, well, it's really more of the same as before. Because on the 30th of January 1919, the usual suspects spent several hours, divided into two meetings, debating on what they had decided about the mandate system, what they disliked about it as a concept, what they disagreed upon between themselves, and also why it was necessary. We have seen in the previous episode that the Dominions were loggerheads with Woodrow Wilson because Australia, New Zealand and South Africa wanted to annex the former German colonies, whereas Wilson wanted them to institute mandates. This despite the fact that Wilson was not entirely sure what the mandate system looked like, and he frequently attempted to adjourn their meetings in a bid to prevent any rifts emerging between the Council of Ten. Wilson also conflicted with his allied partners because, whereas they wanted to resolve the mandate's question straight away, he believed that since the League of Nations would be charged with responsibility in the final sense for mandates, the League of Nations should be firmly established and clarified before much work was done on mandates. The British, French and Italians, so in other words everyone else other than Wilson, by contrast wanted to just get on with things, and the Dominions in particular argued that since they were in place to assume the administration of the new territories, that should happen first before the League was consulted. Otherwise, it was insisted, these former colonies of the Central Powers would collapse into anarchy and it would be too late. Notwithstanding the disagreements, it was here that, on this day 100 years ago, Wilson was confronted with a clear plan, and it came from the mind and advisors of the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George. In the background, tensions existed between the President and his comparatively newer allies, who had made their own deals to partition German or Turkish territory before America had even become involved in the war. These tensions would have to be resolved, resulting in some disappointed plenipotentiaries if the Paris Peace Conference was to be viewed as an overall success. So yes, just from this rundown you can see that it's a very involved episode amidst a very involved time, so without any further ado, Let's get involved with it. After a day discussing Polish matters, the Council of Ten reassembled at 11am on the 30th of January 1919 in the Quai in the French Foreign Minister's Chamber to begin their discussion of the concept, which had bamboozled the Allied representatives for the last several days. Disagreements abounded over how to proceed. These disagreements included but were by no means limited to the desire of the British Dominions to annex former German colonies near them rather than institute a mandate, the desire of the American President to establish the League of Nations before the clarification of mandates, the complications arising over secret treaties and agreements made between the Allies, and the desire of Woodrow Wilson to reimagine world relations with the mandate system and League of Nations at the centre of it. All the while these men had to deal with some pressing problems, foremost among them, the fact that nobody had yet stopped to try and define what a mandate precisely was, or what the responsibilities of the mandatory power in charge of governing that mandate would actually be. High hopes, nonetheless, surrounded this meeting. After a day off from the mandate's question to gain advice and think it over, it was evident from the beginning that back-channel diplomacy between the representatives had taken place. Compromise, it seemed, would win out, but not everyone would be happy with this, and it was inevitable that the disappointments might explode into the open if some people were pushed too far. Still, it seemed only reasonable for David Lloyd George to begin the proceedings with a much-needed definition of the different types of mandates which the new system would create. Three classes of mandates, Lloyd George said, would have to be recognised. These were, first, the type of mandates applicable to countries where the population was civilised but not yet organised, where a country might elapse before the 
people could be properly organized. For example, Arabia. In such cases, it would be impossible to give full self-government and at the same time prevent the various tribes or units from fighting each other. It was obvious that the system to be applied in these territories must be different from that which would have to be applied to cannibal colonies, where people were eating each other. So yes, cannibal colonies. Interesting that he would bring them up there just to provide a contrast between civilised and not-so-civilised. In any case, after bringing up something like that, David Lloyd George switched quickly to look at the second type of mandate, which applied to tropical colonies situated a long way from the country with the possible mandatory. In other words, territories which did not form an integral part of any particular mandatory country. For example, New Guinea. In these colonies, the full principle of a mandatory would be applied, including the open door. Third and finally, there was the form of mandate applicable to countries which formed almost a part of the organisation of an adjourning power, who would have to be appointed the mandatory. If this classification seems somewhat complicated, we might be relieved to know that the end result of this effort at classification provides us with a far clearer picture than David Lloyd George did. It seemed like Lloyd George wanted to define the different mandates based on their proximity to mandatory powers, or in other words, the power which would be responsible for ruling them as a mandate. Instead of Lloyd George's classification, it's worth fast-forwarding a bit to the final Treaty of Versailles and looking at what Article 22 of that document had to say about mandates to show where the whole process ended up. Article 22 then stipulated that To those colonies and territories which as a consequence of the late war have ceased to be under the sovereignty of the states which formerly governed them and which are inhabited by peoples not yet able to stand by themselves under the strenuous conditions of the modern world, there should be applied the principle that the well-being and development of such peoples form a sacred trust of civilization, and that securities for the performance of this trust should be embodied in this covenant. This language was quite distant from Lloyd George's initial efforts to classify mandates into different groups, but Article 22 went further, declaring The best method of giving practical effect to this principle is that the tutelage of such peoples should be entrusted to advanced nations who, by reason of their resources, experience, or geographical position, can best undertake this responsibility and who are willing to accept it, and that this tutelage should be exercised by them as mandatories on behalf of the League. Tutelage by advanced nations, helping the less civilised stand on their own two feet, protecting them from themselves, giving nations hope for the future, all very high-minded ideals, by no means seen merely as window-dressing by those involved in crafting either the Mandate System concept or the Treaty of Versailles which housed it. For his part, Lloyd George went to some lengths to differentiate the efforts of the victors to create the mandate system with that vision of colonialism furthered by the Germans in the past. In his account, The Truth About the Peace Treaties, which has proved immensely useful as a resource for us already, Lloyd George elucidated on these German plans in, well, quite a lengthy extract, but one which is very useful for us here. Lloyd George said... One cannot appreciate the attitude adopted by the ministers who represented the various parts of the empire on the question of the restoration to Germany of her lost colonies without some understanding of the German colonial policy and the use to which German statesmen openly proclaimed they intended to put their colonial empire. German ministers and publicists advertised their colonial aspirations with great frankness during the progress of the war. Their ambition was to found a black empire in Africa extending across that continent from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean. The territory comprised in their minimum claim would cover 7.5 million kilometres, 3 million more than the whole of India, and would include a population of 30 million. German publicists laid special stress on the fact that as a large proportion of the native population was Mohammedan, there would thus be a more formidable Mohammedan empire in Africa than in Turkey, and it would all be under German control. As one of the most reputable of the German writers put it in a document issued during the war, We are fighting indirectly in order to get back our colonial territory and to increase it. We are fighting for an empire in Central Africa. Portugal and Belgium were in the main the contributors to this enlarged empire, but France was also to yield her share. 
the German colonial secretary, a very able statesman, and also one who, in comparison with some of his associates, was reputed to be a very moderate man, thus expounded the official German view. A. Africa is no longer the dark continent, but has become the foreland of Europe, with a great part to play as the producer of tropical raw materials for European industries. B. The existing partition of Africa among the European colonising states is recent, haphazard and accidental, with the result that weak and ineffective powers are in possession of gigantic areas which they cannot develop, while Germany, in spite of her position and power, finds herself left in the cold with considerably smaller and far-scattered territories. He therefore claims that when peace is made, there shall be a repartition of Africa among the belligerent European countries. In the Treaty of Peace, there can be only the question of a fresh partition. As he said, in this fresh partition, C. Germany must receive a continuous domain, large in extent because the war in Africa has shown that defensive power is in direct proportion to the size of the continuous area, with frontiers on both oceans and fortified naval bases, the importance of which has been demonstrated in this war. D. This domain must be adequately defended by white and especially black troops, but conventions ought to be concluded between the powers against the militarization of the natives who should not be employed in European or other campaigns outside their country. Belgium was to be held as a pawn in this game. The Congo was to be the price of the evacuation of Belgium. The price of the withdrawal of the German armies from French soil was to be the surrender of French colonies in Central Africa. Britain was to be told that unless she restored German East Africa, and perhaps Southwest Africa, Germany would retain her hold on Belgium and the northern provinces of France. As one of their writers put it, if the English are confronted with the choice of either allowing us to have these colonies or of seeing us establish a direct or indirect dominion over Belgium, it will come easier to them to let us have the colonial empire. That was the peace strategy of the German leaders. So apologies for that very long extract, but hopefully after hearing all that, you'll be able to get the point which Lloyd George was trying to make. The idea was to highlight the stark contrast between Allied and Central Power War aims with respect to the colonies. The Allies, David Lloyd George could protest, were not trying to create a black new empire or harness the powers of the populations in foreign lands. Instead, they were civilizing it and protecting those peoples who could not protect or civilize themselves and who needed to be led. In recognition of the varying states of civilization reached by different mandated peoples, read the final version of Article 22 in the Treaty of Versailles, the mandates have been ranged in three classes as follows. And Article 22 then went on to list these three different classes. I think it's worth looking at these now, and with Lloyd George's ideas for the three classifications in mind, we should get some use out of it. So, Article 22 had this to say about dividing mandates into three categories. Class A. Certain communities, formerly belonging to the Turkish Empire, which have reached a stage of development where their existence as independent nations can be provisionally recognised, subject to the rendering of administrative advice and assistance by a mandatory until such time as they are able to stand alone. In this class are placed three states. Palestine and Transjordania, Iraq, and Syria and Lebanon, the first and second assigned to Great Britain and the third to France. Class B, mandates created in Central Africa, where the people seem to require more supervision than the people of Class A in order to ensure their development. Of this class, six mandates have been established. One-sixth of the Cameroons, East Africa, Togoland, all assigned to Great Britain. The Cameroons, that is the remaining five-sixths, and Togolands, the remaining two-thirds, would be assigned to France, and Rwanda would be assigned to Belgium. Class C, regions in which, through sparseness of population or other conditions, the best results are obtained through administration as integral parts of the mandatory state and under its laws, subject to conditions safeguarding the interests of the inhabitants. In this class are five mandates. Southwest Africa, assigned to the Union of South Africa, Samoa and other West Pacific Islands, assigned to New Zealand, Nauru, assigned jointly to Great Britain, Australia and New Zealand, the other former German islands south of the equator, assigned to Australia, and the former German islands north of the equator, assigned to Japan. 
So that was the gist of Article 22 in the Treaty of Versailles. And this, of course, was the finished product. But in order to get there, the Big Four would have to compromise and work very hard to iron out the cracks. The fact that Lloyd George, only after several days of discussions, managed to produce the imperfect definition 100 years ago on the 30th of January 1919, and the fact that the final version greatly differed from it, should tell us a great deal about the central trickiness of the mandates issue. After delivering the earlier definition, Lloyd George was followed by the Australian Prime Minister Billy Hughes, who reasoned that, while he was not happy with the mandates idea, and would rather have Australia annex that portion of New Guinea which Germany had evacuated, he would compromise for the sake of Allied unity, but only once he heard from the home government in Australia, who were about to vote on the decision. Once Canberra returned their assent to him, Hughes said he would then voice his approval. Wilson did not take this well. He first complained at the leakages of the day-to-day negotiations among the Supreme Council to the press, especially those leaks which made him appear idealistic, in contrast to the Dominions or French who were portrayed as more pragmatic and sensible. Even worse, it, it painted Wilson as an idealist who did not quite know how his ideas would work. This, as we have seen, was not an entirely unfair depiction of the President's stance. However, Wilson reasonably noted that if these depictions of him were added to in the weeks to come, he worried for Allied unity. He then addressed the present situation, which did not seem to allow for a speedy resolution to any outstanding question. Was it not better, Wilson asked, to sort out the League of Nations and consult the powers that had a vested interest in the relevant mandates before handing these mandates over? Wilson also defended the mandates idea once more, pointing out that there must be held out an opportunity to realise independence even in the least civilised places. He had, Wilson claimed, several ideas on how the mandate system would work, and he eagerly awaited the opportunity to discuss them, but it was essential before proceeding that everyone be consulted. Lloyd George was appalled at this, and he noted that if everyone was asked their opinion before they proceeded with a decision, then no agreement would ever be reached, and... The result would be disastrous. Lloyd George urged that everyone present adopt the resolutions he had put forward, on the understanding that this acceptance was provisional and amendments could be made later. This was the best way to facilitate progress, the Prime Minister argued, and to wait until the League had been properly established and its constitution hammered out would be akin to kicking the can down the road indefinitely. The League of Nations, said Lloyd George, had already been established and it was ready to go at least for the moment. It was surely more sensible to make provisional decisions now rather than make none at all until everyone was absolutely happy and everything was absolutely in place. Urgent questions, like Britain's maintenance of more than a million soldiers across the world, could not be answered until these questions were resolved, and everyone knew where they stood. The very long minutes of this day record Wilson's response, and it is worth detailing here. President Wilson expressed the view that he had said nothing which need justify discouragement. He was willing to accept Mr Lloyd George's proposals, subject to reconsideration, once the full scheme of the League of Nations was drawn up. He suggested that the resolutions be accepted as an immediate settlement, and, if the premise added by Lloyd George were added, it would prevent any misunderstanding. Mr Lloyd George said that the League of Nations had already been accepted, and that it would be necessary to turn to it for the settlement of various questions. In his opinion, that view emphasised the necessity to know the instrumentality which was to deal with these questions. It would be impossible to refer to an undefined instrument. He did not wish to delay any decision, and he was ready to accept any provisional arrangement. From this extract, it would be reasonable to argue that both sides had a point. Lloyd George wanted to get on with things and make decisions as quickly as possible, even if these decisions were only provisional while Woodrow Wilson didn't want to proceed without clarifying first the powers and structure of those institutions to which they planned to defer. Wilson added that a decision could not be made yesterday on the Polish situation because the institution which was meant to propose solutions, that is, the League of Nations, had not been firmly established yet as a place for final appeals. Wilson advocated pushing forward the formulation of the League's constitution and not making any definite decisions, only provisional ones, until this was done. Thus the President and Prime Minister reached a kind of compromise, but it was unclear at this moment whether it would be sufficient to deal with the busy work ahead of them. Decisions could at least be made, though, with the view that these decisions would be subject to change. 
Hence, while for the moment Lloyd George's presentation of the three different mandates was accepted, in time, in the final version of the Treaty of Versailles, in Article 22 as we have seen, it would have been completely changed in format and in tone. Next, it was the turn of the Italian Premier Vittorio Orlando to voice his support for the provisional points put forward by Lloyd George on mandates, and he asked that Italy, essentially, be given a fair shake when it came to divvying up the spoils, though of course he didn't use the words divvying up the spoils. Orlando was anxious, with good reason as it turned out, that the terms of the secret 1915 Treaty of London would not be respected, and he thus felt the need on several occasions to remind those present about what Italy was entitled to and why she had intervened in the war in the first place. These expressions by Orlando read more like filler in the minutes and as an attempt by the Italian premier to waste time with long-winded pronouncements, but considering Orlando's position and the promises he was seeking, it is hardly surprising that he came across this way. The Japanese representative then gave his two cents and in a roundabout way made it clear that the decisions made over the last few days had been communicated to Tokyo and he was awaiting their judgment on these decisions before giving his unqualified support to this Supreme Council's conclusions. Clemenceau then intervened, adding that since everyone had accepted Lloyd George's provisional version of mandates, they should now decide what would be discussed next. Clemenceau added that if I have correctly interpreted what had been said that morning, I feel compelled to make some serious formal reservations. Clemenceau's reservations, unsurprisingly, revolved around the constitution of the League of Nations and the final form it would take. Whereas most French statesmen, including Clemenceau, viewed the League as the best way to preserve the wartime alliance system and as a guarantor against German revanchism in the future, Clemenceau was also wary of the fact that some viewed the League as an organism to deal with all the world. Clemenceau concluded that, If this new constitution for the whole world was to be produced in eight days, I am bound to feel some anxiety. The Australian and Canadian premiers then weighed in in their turn, with Billy Hughes, representing Australia, arguing for a clear expression of what the mandate system was to look like. Since this could only be achieved once the League of Nations was firmly established, Hughes urged that the great powers now assembled act as the executive of that league and make decisions in its name. It was, after all, the leaders of these great powers that held the real power and they were best positioned to effect changes. Until matters were clarified, Hughes confessed that the Australian people would be reluctant indeed to give their blessing to something which could not be explained, that being the mandate system, and that it would be impossible to expect them to accept a principle the nature of which was not known. A definite decision could only be expressed when they knew what it all meant. The world, Hughes concluded, looked to us for decisions, and the world would breathe more freely if these decisions were made. The views of the Canadian Premier, Sir Robert Borden, were a touch more interesting, because Borden emphasised the importance of public opinion in the whole affair. Public opinion would be the truly important factor when constructing the League of Nations. Much like the British Empire, which Borden said he studied, public opinion meant that there was a mandate to act and that the assent of the population had been given. A similar thing had happened in the Great War. Force would never have compelled the Dominions to intervene, it was said. Only the weight of public opinion could have moved them to send their fighting men. Borden urged those present not to apportion too much responsibility to the League of Nations. Born as an infant, it might develop as a giant, Borden said, but whilst an infant, too much should not be imposed upon it. Borden added that he hoped speed would be the order of the day in the conference, since it was imperative that matters were decided as quickly as possible. Borden thus identified with Lloyd George when he argued that provisional decisions be made now, but that too many tasks being placed in the lap of the young League would be a recipe for disaster. Let what could be decided now be decided now, with the caveat that amendments could be made in the future where desired. The longer all present dallied, Borden argued, the more fatigued and disenchanted with the proceedings of the conference, the wider public opinion would become. If they wanted to legitimise their actions through the goodwill and assent of the people, concluded the Canadian Premier, they would have to act with purpose and towards resolution. 
At this, the conference adjourned until 3.30pm that afternoon. Tempers had flared and patience had been strained, but the day was now only half over. It took the minutes of the Council of Ten a full 20 pages of detail to cover all that happened in the next few hours, but thankfully for us, we can summarise what was said with relative ease, largely because, frustratingly enough, much of it was familiar ground. Wilson showed even less patience than before with the Dominions, and the Premier of New Zealand opened the second meeting by alluding to New Zealand's sacrifices, her general support of the League, her preference for annexation, but her acceptance of this compromise. The minutes give a good summary of the New Zealand position, as its Premier William Massey was recorded as saying the following. I would like to say that I support the proposal of a League of Nations. I hope and believe that it would be a good thing. I believe it would do much to prevent war in the future. Members of that conference have a tremendous responsibility so far as the prevention of war in the future was concerned. I believe that if war was not to be renewed in the near future... I mean from 25 to 50 years hence, which was a very short period in the life of a nation, they had not only to see that justice was given on the one hand to those that suffered in this war, and there were many, but also to those that had broken the laws of civilization during the last four and a half years. I believe that would do more to prevent war than anything else. So far as I am concerned, I am responsible to my constituents, and I am prepared to shoulder that responsibility. In a classic case of miscommunication, or perhaps as an example of Wilson's growing frustration with the Dominions for not seeing things this way, Wilson made it plain that he had interpreted Australia and New Zealand's stances as ultimatums. Wilson had drawn this conclusion from the two Dominions' arguments that they would compromise to a degree, but would not be able to go much further than an amendment of Clause 8. Clause 8 was the clause of the mandate system proposed by David Lloyd George earlier in the day, which stipulated for direct control over certain regions based on their sparseness of population, underdeveloped nature or isolated location. New Zealand and Australia wished to see their desired territories, German Samoa and German New Guinea respectively, included in this clause. Clause 8 complicated things a bit, which was why we haven't mentioned it, because while it permitted a power to effectively annex the region in question, the annexing power would still have to rule the new territory like a proto-mandatory power. It was, in a sense, a halfway home between outright annexation and mandate status. Australian Prime Minister Billy Hughes confessed he would accept Clause 8 as the second best option, but he added that he could not go any further. Did this really represent an ultimatum sent by the Dominions to the conference? Not really, though Wilson genuinely could have interpreted it this way. Neither New Zealand nor Australia were in any position to make threats or send ultimatums. Instead, they wished to get the best version of what they wanted. William Massey of New Zealand felt the need to clarify his position and assuage the President's concerns, though, in a classic case of the kind of delicate diplomacy which had to be done during the conference. According to the minutes, Massey said that, I want to assure the President that if he, Wilson, imagined that any threat was intended, he quite misunderstood the matter so far as both I and Mr. Hughes were concerned. As a public man, I have never used threats, and I do not accept threats from anyone if I could possibly meet them. However, I have made the point perfectly clear, and I might go as far as the proposals of Clause 8 without consulting my own government. I am prepared to go so far because I could not get what my government wanted, and in that case I am prepared to accept the next best proposal. It was time to move on, and time to accept provisionally the gist of Lloyd George's earlier presentation of the mandate system. But next, it was time to address a point raised in the past, that of a power leveraging its colonies to raise massive armies of natives to use in the purpose of aggression or conquest of its neighbours of European states. Clemenceau objected to what he perceived as the vague and limiting implications of this point expressed in Clause 7 of Lloyd George's Provisional Treaty on Mandates. Clemenceau laid out France's position at the present moment. She was the only power to whom Germany could directly reach out and strike against. Consequently, her security was compromised in the way that neither Britain nor America's was. This, of course, was the crux of Clemenceau's concern, and it would come back to bite France in the future. That plain old fact of geography. 
Because of all these considerations, France relied heavily upon the manpower boost provided by her colonies in order to make up for the shortfall and to make up for the comparative advantage in size which Germany held over the French populace. Lloyd George, hearing this, leapt to the defence of his earlier treaty by reasoning that there was nothing in Clause 7 which might impinge upon the French ability to raise troops from its colonies to defend the homeland. As Lloyd George pointed out, the words used in Clause 7 expressed that native levies could not be raised other than for police purposes and the defence of territory. This territory, Lloyd George noted, could well include France. There was nothing in the document, Lloyd George noted, which would prevent France doing the exact same thing it had done before. What it did prevent, in fact, was the kind of thing the Germans had nefariously planned to do. Remember that plot to carve a 30 million strong black empire and use this empire to conquer its neighbours, thus taking over the whole continent, using the forces at its disposal to subject Europe, pulling resources from the empire for the fatherland's benefit, and taking advantage of those less civilised peoples. Georges Clemenceau declared that so long as he would not be criticised for violating the treaty in the future by levying native soldiers for home defence, he would happily assent to Clause 7 as it then stood. Lloyd George, with the unfortunate line of the day, then said with some impatience that So long as Clemenceau did not train big, n-word, armies for the purpose of aggression, that was all the clause was intended to guard against. This line was even recorded in the minutes, and says a great deal more about how Lloyd George actually felt about Africa than any of his previous declarations on the humanitarian value of mandates ever could. Bypassing Vittorio Orlando's repeated calls for clarification on Italian rights, we come then to Lloyd George's position, where he expressed his view that it was important to state who the mandatory powers for these mandates would actually be. If everyone waited until the League was clearly established and imbued with authority, and then waited for it to divvy up the mandates, then all the while Britain would be paying to maintain massive occupying forces in hostile regions, regions which they had no intention of holding as a mandate. The burden for paying this fee should fall to the power which actually intended to stand as the mandate. Therefore, Lloyd George argued, it was imperative that the cast of mandatory powers and the cast of mandates was determined and before anything else. To this sense of urgency, Woodrow Wilson suggested that the Supreme War Council should decide which power would be best positioned to serve as a mandatory for the designated mandates. The Supreme War Council was, after all, staffed with the various war ministers of the Allied States, and if anybody possessed the relevant information on hand, it would be that body. Lloyd George ascended to this idea, and it was determined that the Supreme War Council would begin deliberating the next day on the matter. At this, Clemenceau asked whether they could now hear the proposals of the Belgian representative, who of course wished to discuss Belgium's possession of the Congo and the widening of its mandate to cover not merely that region, but also Germany's Southeast Africa territory. Both Wilson and Lloyd George opposed Belgium's entry into the debate at this moment, because as far as they were concerned, there was enough on their plates right now, and they had not been prepared to consider the Belgian issue just yet. Clemenceau added that it would be a bit harsh if they didn't let the Belgians speak, so speak the Belgian representative did. The initial proclamations of support for the principles of the League were followed by the more cynical and nakedly expansionist aims to increase Belgian control over the centre of Africa by reaching across to East Africa in the former German territory and acquiring access to the sea. This Belgian bluntness posed a problem, since it was known that the Portuguese were equally interested in carving their own mandate out of German Southeast Africa. In fact, both Clemenceau and Lloyd George noted that the Portuguese ambassador in Paris and London had been to see them on regular occasions. Wilson wasn't impressed with this talk of expanding their control over Africa and dividing it up amongst themselves, and he interpreted the Belgian appeal here as an effort to get to work in partitioning East Africa before any other powers had the chance. He was also sceptical owing to the appalling criminal record of the Belgian administration in the Congo in years past, which had been just as bad, if not worse, than Germany's record on the continent. Clemenceau concluded that the issue be reserved for the moment so that Portugal could have an equal opportunity to present its case for Southeast Africa.
It was then that Clemenceau asked whether Romania should be brought up, and at this, Lloyd George seems to have lost his temper somewhat. He launched into an attack on the fact that there had been virtually no agenda over the last few days, make that weeks, and as a result, questions which were in need of an answer were brought up, only to be set aside when it became clear that those assembled had not been prepared to answer them. As it was recorded in the minutes, Lloyd George said, It is very important that some sort of agenda be formulated. I am not complaining, but I did not know that the Belgians were coming there this afternoon, and they were putting up a claim which specially affected the British, and I find myself without experts on this question and without maps. I thought the discussion on Czechoslovakia and Poland the other day was absolutely wrong. I would not use the term a waste of time, because that was a very provocative one, and I can already see the glare in the President's eye. At the same time, I thought it was not quite the best method of dealing with the business. George Clemenceau then made an appeal for unity. Wilson had expressed his desire to not discuss colonial questions any further, and Lloyd George was now expressing his desire to not discuss European questions any further. They had to talk about something, or else they would hit into what Clemenceau described as a negotiating cul-de-sac. Wilson then proposed a compromise. It was late in the day, so why not delay the Romanian discussion along with the rest of Eastern Europe till tomorrow, whereupon the opinions of American students, which he had been gleaning, could be taken properly into account. Wilson, here attempting genuinely to be helpful, so it seems, believed that by proposing this compromise, Eastern Europe would still be talked about, and Lloyd George would not feel self-conscious about his lack of preparation. There was indeed something to be said about the ad hoc way in which these questions were raised. Lloyd George evidently did not like being caught off guard, but he had no shortage of advisers to talk to on these Romanian questions, and he was content to discuss the issue of Eastern Europe tomorrow once he'd had time to prepare his position. The discussion of mandates had evidently sucked a great proportion of energy out of the room, and it remained to be determined exactly what mandatory power would be in control of what mandate. However, at least insofar as decisions regarding what a mandate was, and the fact that mandates would serve as the default form of governance for the former German and Turkish colonies, decisions had been made on a provisional basis and would be open to amendment later on. Before breaking up for the day, a very weary Lloyd George made it plain that the leakages to the press would have to stop, as these leakages were creating an unfavourable impression of division and fanaticism of those that were taking part. These discussions were far too delicate and important to allow a smear campaign to proceed. Lloyd George urged that the person responsible for the leaks be apprehended. He also urged that the communique be presented as the official broadcast of the conference's daily activities, so as to grant it the air legitimacy and to discredit further leaks. The actual decisions would not be elucidated on, except when necessary, and instead the activities which were engaged in that day, such as who talked with who and who was charged with doing what, would be released to the press. In such a way did the Allies believe they could safeguard against leaks which would compromise their unity of purpose, but they undoubtedly undermined, in the process, the principle of open covenants openly arrived at, which many reporters still clung to because it had been promised in Wilson's 14 points. With that, the 30th of January's activities were completed, and everyone dispersed until the following day, where another full schedule awaited. Serbia, Romania, Poland and the Czechs still awaited the attention of the Supreme Council, and there were several one-sided historical pictures to be painted, biased politicians to listen to, and grandiose claims to be made. So far, nothing concrete regarding mandates had been presented to the wider plenary peace conference as a whole. It was noted several times in the minutes that Lloyd George's interpretation of the mandate system idea was only provisional and it would change, indeed, in time. There remained the task, after all, of deciding who owned what mandate and how involved exactly the League of Nations would be in the process. Were the day's discussions of a hundred years ago, on the 30th of January 1919, as Lloyd George had come tantalisingly close to confessing regarding the previous day, merely a waste of time? If nothing could be decided with any degree of certainty, if the opinions and research of so many individuals were still being waited on, and if hammering out the final version of the League was held to be more important, then what had been the point of talking about mandates at all? It is highly likely that Lloyd George's frustration at the indecision for Eastern Europe was exacerbated by the similar 
indecisiveness, for the mandates and colonies which all required attention, and judging by the expressions of his peers, he was not alone. It would not be unreasonable to view the 30th of January 1919 as a symptom of the overall problems which the Council of Ten was facing into. There was simply so much to decide, so much was up in the air, and so much disagreement on how to proceed and who to listen to reigned with a disarming ferocity. Disappointing and underwhelming which the day's deliberations had been, the 30th of January 1919, on the other hand, can be seen as a prime example of the central importance not only of the Council of Ten, but of the Big Three to the proceedings. This is a fact which appears blindingly obvious to us now, but nothing was so obvious on this day a hundred years ago, when all involved were evidently feeling their way forwards, hoping to arrive at a consensus, yet having no clear method of resolving conflict. Originally, the genuine intention had been to gauge the opinions of all the relevant powers and to capitalise on the actual popularity of the Mandate system and the League of Nations throughout the world. Here, though, on the 30th of January 1919, the assembled representatives of the Big Four had been given a lesson which they would in the end embrace, that being that much more effective work could be done, and much more quickly, by bulldozing through the larger plenary meetings and by keeping the decision-making executive small and confined to the leaders of the great powers. Much like so many other aspects of the Paris Peace Conference, the high hopes which had imagined so much good that could be done by so many people were sent in headlong retreat when the cruel reality of human self-interest and ambition were revealed. The next few weeks were to provide more examples of these unflattering qualities in spades. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 